morning again. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our roadmap through the events of the end times, the last days. We've started a series entitled, The End is Only the Beginning. And we are looking at the subject or the theological subject of eschatology. The study of the last days. Obviously, with the crises that we have just incurred here in our nation, we have uh, really considered again and revisited the idea of the return of Jesus Christ in our time. I live with the constant uh, urgency that Jesus Christ could return at any moment for his church. And people often, when I say that, will say, well, The Christian church has been anticipating the Lord's return for over 2,000 years. What makes you feel that it's going to happen in our time? That's a fair question. I begin answering that question with the statement that I believe that the apostles of of the New Testament lived with the anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ in their day. And so as a result, they had an an urgency to the fulfillment of the ministries in which God had called them to fulfill. They lived with the anticipation that Jesus could return at any moment and physically set up the kingdom in which he had promised that he would. I have to believe that 2,000 years now that have passed have only brought us 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ. That's the first statement that I would make. The second statement that I would make is to say that the prophetic uh, understanding of the last days are coming to pass before us. We are starting to see the stage being set as the Bible said it would be in the days that Jesus Christ returned. And that really began in 1948 with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. Since then, we have seen one event after another that continue to point to the Lord's imminent return. Now we are starting to see other events taking place before us. And I will say that after 30 years of studying the Bible, never have we been in the situation where so many of these events are now converging all at the same time. To give us an even greater anticipation that the return of the Lord is nearer than we anticipate. Now, for some, that's a very scary reality. For others, it's the blessed hope of the promise that Jesus gave to us, and we look forward to it with great anticipation. There are others who believe that Jesus, again, his slack concerning his promises, that God is not going to return, since the events of history have seemed to repeat themselves time and time again. And as Peter brought forward in his last epistle, he stated very clearly that there are those who scoff and mock outside the church and now within the church, who discount the notion of the physical return of Jesus Christ. And I believe, again, that this was anticipated by Christians from the very beginning. We at Calvary believe in the physical return of Jesus Christ. And that at his return, he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years, then leading us into the time of the A great restoration of all things, a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. But as we've been working through our roadmap, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is writing to a church that appears to be shaken in their minds and in their hearts. They are concerned, they're anxious, they're fearful, because they believe that the circumstances in which they are currently facing, the difficulties, the trouble, the trials, and the tribulations, are an indication that they are now actually in the great day of the Lord, a time of judgment and a time of restoration. They believe that because they've received a letter, apparently from uh, uh, one who's claiming to be Paul, a letter that has been counterfeited and uh, you know, forged, stating that they had missed the escape and that now they are in this great tribulation period. 
And Paul wants to make it clear to them that that is not the case and reminds them of events that must take place before the day of the Lord is fully poured out upon the earth. So we begin in verse 1 and we'll read through to verse 3 again. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's referring to his second coming, his physical return to the earth, and our being gathered together to him. I believe that's referring to the rapture of the church, which I believe takes place prior to the events that unfold in Revelation 6 to 19. It is a removal of the church, for the church has not been appointed to wrath. And as a promise from God he, to remove us from that, as he removed Noah and those before the flood, saving them in the ark, so too we shall be saved in the person of Jesus Christ. The removal of the church, our gathering together to him. He says, we ask you, brothers... Not to be quickly shaken, and this means to, you know uh, where the foundations are shaken, and so since the foundations are shaken, they are in a complete position of insecurity in their relationship with God. Or alarmed to the point where they're fearful or troubled, etc. As by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul makes it clear that he did not write this letter. You are not in the day of the Lord. And though you are going through a crisis, and though you are going through a very difficult period of time, and though you are having trials, troubles, and tribulations, the day of the Lord has not yet come. And then he makes it abundantly clear from this point on what must occur for that event to take place, specifically the idea of the portion of judgment the portion of judgment upon this world. The last seven-year period of time that Revelation 6 through 19 outlines for us is divided in two sections. It's exactly divided in half. The first three and a half years, this individual that we know to be and call the Antichrist, he's known by various terms throughout the New Testament, son of perdition, the lawless one. The little horn, as the Old Testament calls him. We'll see more of his names next week. But as the Antichrist rises, and I believe this is the first event that is spoken in Revelation 6, talking about the individual on the white horse who comes with a bow and arrow. We know Jesus Christ is going to return on a white horse, but with a sword. The word anti doesn't mean in opposite of, but it can also mean in place of. And when the world rejects Christ, it will leave a vacuum, and that vacuum will be filled by the Antichrist, the one that will take Christ's place in the hearts and minds of the people. And God states here at the end of our roadmap that he will actually give a strong delusion, allowing for those who do not believe the truth to embrace the lie. I think that is interesting in our culture today, isn't it? As many today are embracing the lies, the reason for that is due to the fact they're being deceived and also due to the fact that they have rejected the truth, creating again, what I, as I stated, a vacuum within their hearts and minds, therefore filling those vacuums not with the truth because the truth has been rejected, but with a lie because they're being deceived. We're going to see that as a, in a greater scale as we get closer to the end. But then, after the Antichrist comes to power, he will do so through peaceable means, the Bible says. That he'll have answers to questions. It'll, it'll appear that he'll bring together the three necessary components to literally govern and rule the world. Those three components are this. Number one, you have to be able to control the world militarily. So you have to have a certain degree of power. Number two, you must control the world economically, which he will do. Revelation 13 clearly indicates that. And number three, you must, you must control the world through their faith, their religion. 
And the Antichrist is going to seem to be all that, and as my daughter would say, all that and a bag of chips. He's going to fit every one of those categories. He's going to bring about, as a world leader, a military force like the world has never seen before. He's going to bring about economic stability under a one-world government. He's going to bring about a religious ideology that people will commit their allegiance to. And the manner in which he does that occurs at the halfway mark, the Bible says. Where Zechariah tells us that the Antichrist will be mortally wounded. It'll appear as if he dies. But on the third day, it appears that he comes back to life. I I thought I read that somewhere before, right? Let us understand that Satan is not a creator. He's a counterfeiter. So he can only do what God has already done, but try to do it in a manner in which deceives people. Now, you can understand he's brought about peace. He's brought about economic prosperity. He's brought unity to the um, one uh, one world religion. You know, the Pope of the Coexist movement. And all of a sudden he dies and comes back to life. You can just see the world going, praise, praise him, praise him. But the Bible also tells us that it's at that moment in his resurrection or apparent resurrection that Satan fills him. And the last three and a half years of that tribulation period is the great tribulation. A horrific time where God pours out the judgment upon this world. So Paul wants to reinstill in the minds and the hearts to settle the people who have been uh, deceived by this letter or spirit or spoken word that has come about. And he then begins in verse 3, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. We looked at that last week and we looked at the characteristics of deception. And then he begins to remind them of the truth. The remedy, the antidote, the antidote for all deception is truth. Do you know that has been my key prayer over the last two and a half months? With all of the voices yelling various things at the populace of our society, from social media to all of the news outlets, the newspapers, the magazines, etc., all saying different things from different perspectives with different agendas. People are confused. People don't know what to believe. I still hear that constantly. I don't know who or what to believe. I have been praying desperately that the truth would come forward. Truth. That we would see things not subjectively or emotionally but objectively, that we would see things as they truly are and make our decisions as individuals accordingly. We've all seen that the media is well adapt to uh, create their own narrative, show pictures and scenes and lines from speeches in a way that takes them out of context. Seeing these things, And seeing that they have a journalistic responsibility, it is amazing to me that they are not creating healthy information or knowledge, but they are simply deceiving people to forward an agenda that they have and desire for others to believe. But then he goes on after this appeal saying, let no one deceive you. It's actually a command. He says, for that day, and of course he's talking about the day of the Lord, which we have spoken of, will not come until or unless the rebellion comes first. What is this rebellion? The word in the Greek is apostasia. It's where we get our English word apostrophe, apostasy from. It is one of the least discussed aspects of Christian theology. In fact, when I was a new believer in Jesus Christ, 
And my zeal often got the better of me and I would engage in conversations that I wasn't prepared yet to engage in, especially with individuals who were from the uh, Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They would constantly come to my parents' door and try to win us to the Jehovah's Witness movement. And when they discovered that I was a Christian, they would often call me an apostate. And initially, when I was a young believer, I thought they were complimenting me because I thought apostate and apostle was the same thing, you know. I'm like, wow, they think I'm pretty knowledgeable, you know. And I didn't realize what they were saying. I was a new believer. I didn't know these terms. I didn't have this vocabulary at that time. But they were saying to me that I was too far gone. I was unredeemable. That I was a lost cause. I could have told them that, you know. Thank God, God is into lost causes. But that was the first time I ever heard the word, and then I began to see it throughout Scripture, this discussion of apostasy. Today, with the increased knowledge of the Greek language, we have a clearer understanding of this word apostasy than ever before. Over the, just the last 10 years, our knowledge of the Greek language has increased uh, exponentially due to the new uh, manuscripts and fragments and uh, time-paralleled uh, pieces that we have found in history. We discover that what an apostate is, what a, one who commits apostasia is, is one who rebels against the authority that they see over them. One who rebels against the authority that they believe is over them. And Paul is making the statement here, if I may contextualize it for you, that in the last days, individuals will rebel against God who appear to be followers of God. It is something that is happening in-house. It is something that is occurring amongst those who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. But yet, they will come to a point where they will decide no longer to follow Christ, but they will rebel against His authority. And here is the most interesting aspect of this. It refers to the rebelling or abandoning of a former authority for another authority. That's interesting. Because the very next thing that Paul states here in our text is, of course, the coming of the Antichrist, the lawless one, the man of lawlessness is then revealed, the son of destruction. There were some who believed that this term here, apostasia, could refer to the rapture of the church. That has been, uh, I think, greatly uh, shown to be inaccurate. This is a rebellion against God by individuals who appeared to be followers of God. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24 when he said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, there it is, and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now this word has its roots going back into the Old Testament. For example, the root of this word, or if you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, here you're getting a seminary class today, called the Subtuagent, you will discover that this word is used in Joshua 22.22. When Joshua writes, the mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord, he knows and lets Israel itself know if it was in rebellion, there's the word, or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today, meaning of the consequences thereof. It is a rebellion against God that will occur by individuals who appear initially to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now the question then begs, 
And this is something that you should always do whenever you're studying the Bible. You should always have a little notebook next to you where you can write down questions that you are provoked to ask as you are reading the text. So now that we know that the individuals are characterized by a rebellion who once appeared to be followers of Jesus Christ, the first thing that I must ask is why they rebelled against God. And we'll discover that it's actually a matter of the heart. Jesus told us from the very beginning that the word of God, the gospel, would have various reactions within the hearts of individuals. And this is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 13 through 20. In Mark chapter 4, verses 13 to 20, we discover that Jesus actually describes for us the various reactions that the gospel and the word of God will have within the hearts of the individual. It is the great parable of the sower of the seed. And then Jesus explains for his disciples what he means by this parable by indicating that the seed will have various reactions within the heart in which it is sown. There are some initially whose hearts are so hardened to God that the seed lies on the surface. It never sinks into the soil of the heart and never begins to germinate. And Satan comes about quickly and just removes that seed. And we know that there are individuals that you may have spoken to yourself who are so hardened against the gospel that it just lies on their heart and it doesn't really go anywhere and then Satan just comes by and snatches it away. But there are two others that I think are very interesting and must be discussed in our conversation this morning. The second, in verse 16, and these are the ones, I'm sorry, uh, in verse 14, it says, The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, where they hear, and Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And then secondly, he says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. So the initial parable states that some are sown on hard ground, some on rocky ground, and some on thorny ground all agricultural terms to state the type of um, reception that the seed, that is the word of God. And if you've ever um, looked through the Bible, please notice the agricultural terms that are used throughout it. I believe that the agricultural terms, if you want to reason from a philosophical point of view, uh, dismiss the idea of a pragmatic gospel. It's a whole other subject for another day. But it's a natural, organic occurrence. You know, I, I, I live in a condo for a reason, okay? Me living in Michigan and not being able to buy seeds, it never would have affected me. Because I do not have a green thumb. You know, other people, it's amazing, you know, even people in our church. You know, I plant something and it's just, you know, within a minute, it's just like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, And it's like, what is happening here? But then others, like Don and David over here, are they planting? They get this huge, beautiful, flowing thing. And it's already sculpted in a shape, but they never sculpted it. You know, they're just good at agriculture. I don't know very much about agriculture. My idea of agriculture is going to jewel, okay? But notice the agricultural terms used throughout the Bible. Obviously, it was an Aquarian society. So Jesus says someone hears the gospel. Their heart is hardened, and Satan comes and immediately moves it. Now the next one hears it. However, though, the condition of their heart is that it is shallow. It is rocky. And there's no place for the seed to take root. So it is in a very fragile state. It might begin to germinate, but it doesn't fully come to fruition, and of course never bear fruit. These people, these individuals, as the Bible say, they'll receive the word with joy, but they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. But when difficulty comes, tribulation and persecution arises, on account of the word or on account of their faith, they immediately abandon their faith. When things become difficult, they run away. 
because of the rockiness of the soil of their heart. But there are others that are sown amongst thorns. And what Jesus meant by this is that when the individual hears the word of God, they receive it. It again doesn't begin to germinate within their heart. But the cares of this world, the allurement of money, the desire to become wealthy, the love of the world over the love of the things of God begin to overwhelm them and draw them away from God. Now this gives us a snapshot of the hearts of the individual. In each of these cases, I believe that none of these three are actually saved. They hear and they have an academic knowledge and understanding of God and who He is. But the one that Jesus praises is the one that fell on the good soil and brought about fruit, demonstrating that the seed has had its perfect effect within the heart and mind of the individual demonstrating for us that it's only, you know, one out of four that actually hear and receive properly. Now, there's all kinds of theological, uh, theological connotations concerning salvation in these verses, but I'm starting to give you an, an illustration and a picture of the interior of the heart. Because not only is it the condition of the heart, if it is rocky or if it is thorny, But Hebrews 3.12 also tells us the heart that can resist what God is doing is an unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart. We know that the children of Israel, when coming to the promised land, decided not to believe God or the two spies that came out who said it was absolutely uh, within their grasp to take the land in which God had for them. But they listened to the ten and the unbelief kept them from all that God had. And they murmured and complained against God, etc. So unbelief can also contribute to the heart that positions one to apostate from God. And lastly, as Paul brings forward here, ultimately, it will be the deception of the Antichrist that draws these people out from the body of Christ. Jesus made it clear that within the wheat field there are wheats and taras. They look exactly the same, growing up and maturing. And you can't tell one from the other. And you could often destroy the wheat if you tried to separate the wheat from the tara. And this is something that Jesus said he himself will do. The great apostasy, the great rebellion against God will be something that begins as all of the other signs of the end times. As Jesus stated in Matthew chapter 24, they begin as labor pains, where they start very slowly, and then they become more intensive and quicker in concession. And yet, it is not until the very end when it begins to, of course, bring forth a new child. Jesus said these things will be the same. I believe that we are now seeing the beginning of those labor pains when it comes to the apostasy. We are starting to see individuals leaving the Christian church. The question that many may have at this moment is, well, who are these people? Are they Christians? And can I, as a true Christian, commit the sin of apostasy. Now let me say something about the sin of apostasy. It appears from Hebrews chapter 6, 1 through 6, that the state of apostasy places a person in the position where they can no longer get saved. That's a scary reality. That is a scary reality for one to consider. Is it possible for a Christian to place themselves within that sin, or commit that sin of apostasy. Well, I turn your attention to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where John, discussing the apostasies, I'm sorry, uh, the apostasy, uh, in conjunction with the idea of the Antichrist, he says this. It's kind of a tongue twister. And after you memorize it, see if you can say it ten times fast. 1 John 2, 19. 
they went out from us, that is, those who apostate. He says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, that is, truly a Christian, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's clear that John is indicating that those who fall into an apostate position are not truly believers in Jesus Christ. They personally may think of themselves as Christians, but never have been saved. They may have had a lifelong association with church and still never have been saved. And this will show them and others if they are truly saved by their continuation within the body of Christ, within the faith. Now, we do not earn or obtain our salvation by continuing in the faith. But one who is generally born again, God deals with differently. As one wrote very clearly, he says, apostasy is possible only for nominal Christians. But what about a Christian who falls away? A Christian that may backslide. A Christian who may have a period of time where it doesn't look like they're manifesting the fruit, they're not acting like a Christian, and so forth, but they did at one time. You see, God will deal with these people as He deals with His children. In the cases of real believers, the Scriptures declare that God either brings them back through one, suffering, or two, chastisement. Meaning He'll correct those who are His because He loves them too much to leave them the way He found them. So as we begin to stray off at times, and we will begin to stray off at times, God gently brings us back, and sometimes it's through difficult circumstances. It might be through suffering. It may be through uh, chastisement, discipline. But the purpose of this is to draw us back to Him, to bring us back into repentance and to bring us closer to Him. It is interesting when we think of the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite parables in all of the Bible. When the prodigal son, the younger son, came to his father and demanded that he be given his portion of his inheritance now so he can enjoy it now and be on his own and apart from his parents and so forth, and you know the story, you know the account. He then goes off and he wastes and blows everything that he ever was given. He sunk so low that he began to feed pigs, which was a horrific, defiled job for one who was a Jewish person. Finally, he came to his senses and he says, this is ridiculous. Why am I doing this when I had all of that great stuff back with my dad in his home? And of course, the dad being the God. God. He finally gets up and comes back. And how does the dad respond? Looking out his window, sees his son coming up the walkway. He yells to his wife, shut the curtain, shut the door, this kid's coming back for more. Right? Is that what your Bible says? Good. No, he ran out the door to meet his son. You see, though his son had disobeyed in such a great and horrific way, he still was his son, wasn't he? And waited, the father waited in anticipation for his return. This is the way God deals with us as we backslide. Or we move away and drift away from God for a period of time for one reason or another. We get caught up in the things of this world again. We... We take our eyes off of the Lord and begin to act contrary to the Scriptures and get entangled again with things that God has released us from. But if we are truly His, God won't leave us there. He always comes after us because He loves us too much to leave us the way He found us. Peter says that those who do turn away from their association with Christianity... And I use that word because I do not believe that these individuals were saved. Peter wrote about them in 2 Peter 2, 20 and 22. He says, 
For if, after they have escaped the defilement of this world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the pure proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallowing in the mire, meaning that the interior of their hearts haven't been changed. The knowledge of God in and of itself has moved them to a place and position to enjoy maybe the certain aspects of God. For example, if someone comes to our church and they do not know the Lord and they hear the teaching of the Word of God and they're experiencing the praise and the worship of the congregation here at the church, there is a, um, there is a benefit to that for them. They experience maybe a, a joy. They experience something that they haven't experienced before, but it doesn't mean that they're saved. Today in the United States of America, we are seeing this apostasy begin. And it's becoming more and more concerning. Obviously, we know that it'll climax with the coming of the Antichrist. But an individual that I respect highly who writes and trends certain um, metrics stated this in his recent blog when he stated that according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the number of Americans with no religion has more than doubled between the years 1990 and 2009. He also went on to say that according to American Religious Identification Surveys, only 76% of all Americans identify them as Christians of one type or another, in 2009. But back in 1990, it was 86%. Now, we know, folks, that if 76% of our nation was truly born-again, on-fire believers, we would not be in the positions that we are in today, right? It doesn't mean that you are saved to check a box to say that you affiliate yourself with Christianity. But even that is becoming uh, less consistent as time goes on. He went on to say that a study conducted by Barna Group discovered that nearly 60% of all Christians in the ages of 15 to 29 years old are no longer actively involved in any church. This has been a real issue in the last 10 years, where people equate, of course, Christ and the church as one and the same. People have gone to churches and have had horrible experiences and, of course, have projected those experiences onto God. Often when I discuss things with them, I discover that they're, they're not really opposed to Jesus as much as they're opposed to church. And cutting through some of that can be more difficult than you anticipate. Lastly, he said one survey conducted while back in, a while back found that 52% of all American Christians believed that. Now listen to this. The survey actually was taken in 2011. This survey in 2011, 52% of all American Christians believed at least some non-Christian faiths can lead one to eternal life. Tell me that's not the bedrock of apostasy. Many will tell you that there are many ways to God. I agree with that. But there's only one way to heaven and through the person of Jesus Christ. All the other roads lead to God at a moment in time where all, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But then it's too late. In the Gospel of John, the disciples came to a crossroads moment with the Lord and their relationship with him. Jesus' ministry had peaked in popularity due to the fact that he was Healing people, feeding people, raising people from the dead. People loved that. He, they loved him when he confronted the religious leaders head on and rebuked them openly, not bowing to their so-called authority, but 
asking them to bow to him in submission to his authority. But when Jesus began to just simply teach, something happened. The number of people began to dwindle and turn away and leave. As the sayings of Jesus became harder and harder to hear and to apply, where the teachings of Jesus required true self-sacrifice, taking up the cross, denying oneself, and following after him. As a result, the crowds began to thin. And it came to one point in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71, where Jesus then, after seeing the crowds dissipate because his sayings were hard, meaning that they couldn't understand them and then therefore they certainly didn't want to apply them. Jesus then turned to the disciples and he asked them a very simple question. He said to them, do you also desire to depart from me? Do you desire to depart from me? I'd like to read this for you if I may. When many of his disciples heard it, that is the teaching, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Meaning, who would want to listen to it? I mean, this is just not somebody, something somebody would seek out to hear. It didn't tickle people's ears. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. He had just finished teaching on the idea of drinking his blood and eating his body, of course, in the symbolic manner of remembering, remembering his crucifixion and resurrection. Communion. He says this is a spiritual thing. But he turns and says to them in verse 64, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus saying that indicated to those individuals that you're not following me based on your conditions, based on your rules. You're following me because the Father has drawn you to do such. And you are then, therefore willing to self-sacrifice and so forth because of the work the Father is doing in the heart of the individual. When teachers came about in that society, a disciple would make the choice to attach himself to that teacher. But if the disciple felt at one particular moment in time that that teacher uh, didn't uh, give them what they wanted or didn't uh, meet expectations, the disciple then could turn away from that teacher. And that is what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus is not fulfilling their predetermined expectation, and many of them turned away. And after saying that about the Father in verse 66, he says this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? See, this is the question. We're going to have to answer this question at some time within our Christian life. Do we want to go away as well? Are we going to be confronted by the allurement of this world, believing that the world has something better to offer us than God does? Are we going to come to a point in our life where we're no longer willing to sacrifice our own self-wants, and our own personal will to live out and to fulfill the will of our Lord. When we begin to see others turning away from Christianity, or as we've begun to see, where many now frame Christianity as an ancient form of ignorance, 
that true intellectual enlightenment must depart from Christianity or we'll never truly understand the world around us properly until we do so. And this is why in the last 10 years we've had the surge of what I call the neo-atheistic movement. When we are belittled for our Christian faith. I want everybody to hear me now, if you will. Take a moment. Listen to what I'm about to say. It is only going to be a matter of time in this nation when this persecution against conservatism is turned to Christianity. It's only a matter of time. It's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. Because you're going to find that they are going to discover that the bedrock of our adhering to a constitution created in the worldview of Christianity is due to the fact that we're Christians, right? And as a result, we are going to be persecuted and hated for it. We're already being belittled in the intellectual world, aren't we? Where we have seen professors who would even dare to uh, make the statement of intelligent design lose their tenure and be dismissed from the university just because they wanted to question the, the terrible theory of evolution. We are all going to be confronted with this question. Do you want to go away as well? I hope that we answer as Simon Peter did. Now, Simon Peter wasn't perfect, was he? In fact, he's one that I can relate to very well within the scriptures. He had uh, a disease called foot and mouth. Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord... To whom shall we go? Where do we go from you, Lord? Why did he say that? He says it here. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them. I, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is of the devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, uh, Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It is interesting to me, when I think about Peter, this incredible declaration that he makes at this point. If I was standing there with him, I'd be amazed and be like, yeah, Peter, that's it, you nailed it. Where else are we going to go? Or when Peter proclaimed openly, when Jesus asked them all clearly, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the son of God. And Jesus said, well, frost and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father who is in heaven. And yet, when we come to the last supper, when Peter leans over and says, even if all these other betray you, I will never betray you. Jesus says, oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. Before this day is out, the, croc, the cock crows three times. You're going to deny me three times. No, Lord, I will never, ever do that, right? Now, denying the Lord three times would certainly possibly indicate that he became an apostate, right? But it said after the third time that he went and whipped, wept bitterly because he was so grieved at over what he had done. I mean, he was in a terrifying circumstance, don't get me wrong. I mean, the little girl that confronted him was probably very scary. And yet, when the angels came to open the tomb and Mary arrived on that morning, in one of the Gospels, it states very clearly, go and tell the disciples, Mary, oh, and go and find Peter. Go find Peter. You see, the Lord didn't let him go, did he? The Lord sought him out, sat him down, and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? See, that's the way God deals with those who are his. Peter blew it. He failed. But Jesus allowed him to understand the limitations of his flesh. Because the next time we read of Peter... In the book of Acts, after being endued by power from the Holy Spirit, he goes out and preaches, and 3,000 come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The same Peter. 
See, God doesn't use perfect people. He used flawed people. God doesn't care what you bring to the table because everything you need is already at the table. God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. But there are those individuals who have associated themselves with Christianity and have never been born again. It is those individuals that are in a very vulnerable position because things are going to happen, trials and tribulations. The cares of this world are going to become overwhelming and they're going to want to depart and leave the Lord. The unbelief that's going to grow within their heart due to the fact that they have not been regenerated by the Lord is going to cause them to back off even more quickly. And then, at the arrival of the Antichrist, overwhelmingly deceived by the persona in which he carries. Have you come to Christ? It's a question that's raised throughout the New Testament. Make your calling and election sure. Ask yourself the question, have I truly been born again? Oh, if you look back at your life journey graph, it might look like this, you know. But it should always continue going up. Even though you might have some down times, you go back up. But if it's like this, if you've flattened the curve and you're on a downward trajectory completely, may I ask you to take a step back and to actually consider, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Because if you haven't, it is the warning given to you today that we speak to. Turn to Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your faith and trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation. And then he'll come, as he's already been, seeking you out because he loves you so much. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the work that you are doing, that you are faithful to complete, the work that you have started.